Open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 23. We're going to continue the story of Paul and his defenses of the gospel, Paul and his defense of Jesus, Paul and his bold public proclamations of Christ. And as we do, I want you to join me with me in praying that, that God would impress on you a sense of a sense of responsibility. What does God want from me in this world? What does God want from me in the kind of culture that I live in? The people around me with the opportunities that I've been given, what is God expecting of me there? What are my responsibilities to Him? Can I stand before Him one day and say, I did it. I was faithful. I did what you asked of me. And I also want you to be thinking about what are your responsibilities towards the people around you. Believing that nothing happens simply by happenstance or coincidence. You're where you are with the people that God wanted you to be with and around and near. And you have the influences that you have by, by the design of God. God's hand is always involved. God is always working. And What responsibility do you have towards them? particularly those that don't know Christ. What is God calling us to do? Let's pray. Fathers, we look at the unfolding of this story, another chapter in the growth of the gospel and the spread of your kingdom. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be dispassionate towards it or personally disconnected from it. Father, I pray that we would see ourselves in in the story that you're writing. Why, why are we here right now in the sort of times that we live in? Why are we facing the things that we're facing? Why us? Why now? And what do you want from us, Father? Father, I pray that we would be bold, courageous, faithful representatives of you in this world. And I pray that the harshness of our times would not cause us to be so calloused or even grow angry against the times, the culture, the people, the stuff all around us. Father, make us useful, make us fruitful, keep us faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 12. If you're new to us today, it's a continuation of a story Paul's under, under trial, as it were, and he's been forced to give a defense of himself and what he's done, his ministry, and he's been given an opportunity to give a defense of what he believes and why he believes it. And it's been escalating. It's been pushed up to higher and higher levels. Well, now we see him on the cusp, on the precipice of going to the highest level of all, that the gospel might eventually reach Rome. And so we pick up in verse 12 of chapter 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot, and they bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. How great was their animosity towards Paul that this many of them, 40 of them, more than 40, the Scriptures say, made a vow to each other and to their leaders, we won't eat or drink until he's dead. 
There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So to see the scene, the religious leadership, the Sanhedrin of the Jews, has now lost control of the trial of Paul. And for his security's sake, a tribune has taken him away and put him in protective custody. And so now they're making this appeal. If you can get him to concede giving him back to us and we can bring better information to you if you let us do so, then on the way back, we'll take care of this once and for all. This will be over. Now the son of Paul's sister, which would be his nephew for those of you technically minded, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they are going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions, and he said, Get ready, 200 soldiers, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So you get a sense of the story. I don't need to tell you another story to illustrate that story. You see the drama that's unfolding here. And this is a little side note, just one of the little interesting biblical proofs that we have in archaeology. For a number of years, archaeologists or um, skeptics, cynics of Scripture, argued that this sort of storyline is fabricated because we have nothing in history that tells us of any governor named Felix. There's nothing that appears. We have nothing in writings that speak of any governor named Felix. Until they were excavating the area around Herod's palace in Caesarea. We call it Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. And you can Google these things. You can see some beautiful pictures. And when they were excavating there, they found a stone. They found a marker 
that spoke of Felix the governor. And they also found markings describing where Paul himself was kept there in prison in this place. So just one more validation. Not that we need it from the world, but there's nothing that we find. The more we discover in history, the more we discover in archaeology, the more we find verification and validation for Scripture. So here's the story so far. These Asian Jews had appeared when Paul was showing up at the temple. And they wanted to lynch Paul. They wanted him dead on the spot. They tried to, they tried to antagonize a choir. I mean, a whole crowd of people up against him, and they failed. The Sanhedrin put him on trial, and they couldn't convict him. And the Romans took over the whole case. And now you have this plot conspired by these 40-plus men who pledge not to eat or drink until he's dead. But here's the critical truth in the whole story. And this is the part that I want you to see the most. And I want you to embrace this, not just see it historically, but embrace this personally. In all of this, in all this conniving and conspiring, and all of this intended evil and wickedness, and all of this antagonism and attack towards Paul, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The Sanhedrin is not sovereign. The Roman government is not sovereign. The the throng and the crowd, they're, they're not sovereign. God is sovereign. And his plans regarding Paul, and specifically his plans regarding the gospel through Paul and the spread and the growth of the church, God's plans are unassailable. They can't be undone. And God is working out something here through the means of his people like Paul, like Timothy, like Titus, people like Luke, People like Christians whose names we don't know and some whose names we do. And God is working out something much bigger here. And when it begins to look like it's all spinning out of control, when they begin to look more and more like victims, when it begins to look like the evil government will prevail or a godless crowd or or the culture itself will end it or crush it, we're reminded again for our faith's sake. No, no. There's a sovereign hand who's holding it all together, who's bringing something to bear. And so by God's providence, and what's the difference between sovereignty and providence? If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've discussed this as we've gone through the Exodus of how God carries out his promise to Israel to deliver them, to make them into a people and a nation, even when the Egyptians had taken them into captivity, and it looks like God's promise to Israel was undone. How does God carry that out? His, his sovereignty is this. He is king. The world is his. He made it. He has right over all of it and the power to do with it as he pleases. That's sovereignty. And providence is how God carries out that sovereignty, his his good and wise and purposeful sovereignty in the world. What is God doing? How is God working things together? How is God accomplishing his plans through people, both people who follow him and people who oppose him? How is God bringing all these things to bear? See, God's working towards an end here. And the ultimate end of this is God is going to take the gospel to the highest places. Starting out in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And to get to the ends of the earth, it will help a great deal if the gospel penetrates the greatest city on earth, Rome. And its access, its reach into all the nations. And so God's working out this plan to carry all this out unto the very end. And no band of 40 plus men, no angry crowd, no maligning Jews from Asia falsely accusing Paul. No Roman government can thwart it. In the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 5, section 1, on the subject of providence, it reads this. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, 
dispose and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's the sort of thing that you and I can go to bed at night confident in. We look at what's happening in the world today, and we're we're tempted to become despairing, despondent about it, feel hopeless or helpless. We need to be reminded that God has never relinquished his sovereign control over all things. And God is working out everything according to his will towards a God-glorifying, man-blessing end. So what's the result of all of this? Paul is now going to go to speak to Felix, the Roman governor. How did that happen? How did he go before the high priest in Jerusalem and a council that had long since rejected Jesus in the gospel? How did he go from there all the way to Felix, the governor of Rome? How does that happen? The sovereign hand of God. The gospel is going to reach where God intended because God himself will see to it. And that's the essence of God's providence. What God wills, God sees to it. He'll see to it. One way or the other, he'll see to it. He'll see to it in the means of all those things. He's going to carry it out. And so it looks like each of these things are dominating the scene or controlling the narrative. But we know something better. We know God is in charge of his own narrative all the way through. So remember this. When it looks like man is free in all these situations... Free to oppose, free to antagonize, free to lie, free to malign, free to attempt to murder even. In his freedom, God is always freer. The only truly sovereign being in the world, the only truly free, the one who has no limitations, the one whose will cannot be stopped, the one who cannot be opposed is God. And that's good news for us. Amen? That's good news for us. I'm going to tell you a little bit more why in just a moment. We'll see it in the text. Look what happens next. So now Paul has been ushered to before the governor Felix, responsible for the entire province of Judea. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In Hebrew, that's called kissing up. In every way, in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. And that term plague, by the way, um, has a biblical root. Can you think of another time when... Plagues were mentioned in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. These plagues, these things that afflict us. He's become an enemy. He's become a thorn to us. He's become a cancer to us. He's become a disease that has to be rooted out. This is, this is Paul, the gospel. We found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So they brought some cheerleaders with them for their case. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, 
Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, lest these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. It's interesting to me that Paul says to Felix in that moment, I am cheerfully making my defense. And just think on that for a moment. I don't want to rush through these texts, even though there are a lot of verses and we're covering a lot of territory. I want you just to recall for a moment what all Paul has endured. The physical side for a moment. Let's start there. The beatings. The near-death experiences. The, the throng of a crowd just pounding on him. The punishment from the Romans for, for no cause. All that he had endured physically. And think about the emotional suffering. Paul was so emotionally wrapped up in his ministry that he would sacrifice his own life for the sake of his kinsmen, the Jews, that they also would believe, the emotional. Think of the toil on him relationally. I mean, just in every possible way, the great cost. And yet in this moment, he says, I will cheerfully defend myself. Paul's able to give a cheerful defense because his focus was always on the opportunity in front of him, not the opposition against him. He's he's grateful that even in pain and suffering and difficulty and hardship, whatever it may be, that God has given him a platform. He's given him a voice. And truthfully, that voice, that platform, that opportunity would never have come apart from that sort of suffering. And so you see what Paul values most. He doesn't value his own comfort the most. And he doesn't value his own health the most. He doesn't value his own personal peace the most. What he values the most is being a sharp instrument in the hands of God to accomplish his purposes. God, if you can use me, whatever it may be, I will have my life given over for this purpose. I would happily die for this. It's the opportunity, and so I'm cheerful now that you've given me yet another opportunity. Now I get to give the gospel before the court of a governor of Rome. I'm cheerful. I'm happy to do this. Tertullus' persecution, or prosecution, I should say, focused on these three charges. First, he's a troublemaker. Everywhere he goes, he stirs up trouble. Now, it was an exaggerative claim. He says he's a troublemaker. People are getting riled up everywhere. And, of course, because we looked at the text, we know what people were getting riled up about. It's not that Paul's intention was to just stir up conflict everywhere, drama. But Paul was telling people the truth, and people were recoiling against it. They hated what Paul was saying, and they reacted. 
The second charge is he's a ringleader for a heretical sect. They call them the Nazarenes. Why do they call this sect that Paul's leading Nazarenes? Because he's a follower of this rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. And they called it a sect. And listen to Paul's response. Well, I'll give that in just a second. He's a ringleader. And they, they call Jesus a heresy, heretical sect. doesn't follow us. He departs from us, rejected by us. And then they make the overtly false claim that he desecrated the temple. He desecrated the temple. And you remember, if you've been here for a few weeks, you remember the great ends to which Paul went so that he would not do that. He went through that seven-day period of Jewish purification rites so that he could re-enter the temple, just in case anyone accused him of being unclean because of his associations and, and relationships throughout all of his travels. But it was a false accusation um, that had no weight, no bearing. So Paul gives a defense to those three charges, specifically. One, he says, I've been back for 12 days, and guess what you don't see? Riots. Do you see any riots here? I mean, if I wanted to cause a riot, I would do it here at Pentecost. I, I, I would do it here in, in Jerusalem. I, I would do it here where I could stir up the most. That's not what, I'm done, what I've done here. I haven't done it in the temple. I haven't done it in all the synagogues, all the houses of prayer. I haven't done it in the city, in the public sector. I haven't done it. There are no riots. Where's the evidence? And then he says this, when they said, I'm a ringleader for the Nazarenes, he says, I believe in the same God, the same scriptures, and the same resurrection as these men. By the way, just so you know, Paul is not untethering himself from the Old Testament. He's affirming the Old Testament. He's saying everything that they say that they believe, I believe in fact. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in the prophets. I believe in the scriptures. I believe in the law. I, I affirm these things. They don't truly affirm them. So Paul's making a connection that the story of God's salvation is not just a Matthew, Mark, Luke, John story when the Gospels began. It's a Genesis moving forward story. And he says, I affirm these things. And I'm telling you, the fulfillment of these things is, is Christ. And he says, I was purified. When it comes to desecrating the temple, no, I was purified so I could worship there. I did everything necessary to worship there. And then he adds this, and where are those Jews from Asia? Shouldn't they be here? I mean, it was their accusations that got all this going. Where are they? The Jews have a prosecutor, a hired hand. Paul defends himself. But it's interesting in this text that Paul defends himself against each of their charges, but then he confesses something that they didn't charge him with. You see, all their charges were not really what was at issue there. That's not really what made them guilty, made him guilty in their eyes. What really made Paul guilty in their eyes, what, what made him a plague to them, was what Paul said about the resurrection, and specifically, who was raised. You see, when, Jesus I mean, when Paul proclaimed Jesus as being raised from the dead, that's what they couldn't tolerate. That's what they couldn't tolerate. All these other things, these are sidebars. These are things they were just simply hoping that they could use against him so they could have an opportunity to put him to death. Uh, they were hoping that the Romans would put him back into their hands and say, this is your issue, this is a Jewish issue, not a Roman one, do with him as you please. But their real issue was spiritual. It wasn't any of these criminal issues or political issues. It, it was spiritual. He proclaimed Jesus as being raised from the dead. And if Jesus is raised from the dead, then that changes everything. That changes everything. That means everything that they've been doing 
was overtly evil. Everything that they had been opposing was actually from God. Everything that they had rejected was actually true if Jesus has been raised, because everything centers on that. And that's why Paul would later write, if Jesus is not raised, then we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. Our faith is futile. It has no value, no worth, if Jesus is not raised. But because Jesus is raised, then we know he is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. He is the Son of God, the sole Savior of the world. He is the one that we have seen. He is the one that's coming again. He is the one to whom we owe our forever allegiance to. And that's all based on the resurrection. Now, maybe at the center of all this exchange is one statement that I just want you to hang on to tightly for a moment. And I think it's critical. He says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I always take pains. And if you want a life verse, you want a goal to live up to, you want to put something as a target to hit in your life, how about that? I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. They're accusing me falsely. They wish for my death. They're plotting against me. They hate me. But my conscience is clear towards them. And one day when I stand before the one judge whose opinion really matters, no disrespect, Felix, the governor, no disrespect, Ananias, the high priest, but when I stand before God one day, I want to be able to stand with confidence there, doing, having done what I was supposed to do. I want my conscience to be clear. How will you get there? I think a clear conscience towards God requires at least this. I've got to trust in God enough to be obedient to him. I've got to trust in what he's told me enough, what he's told me about the resurrection, what he's told me about eternal reward, what he's told me about life and death, what he's told me about his return. I have to trust him enough to say, you are good. And though I can't see how this will play out, And though I may suffer for it, my suffering will be incomparable to the reward of being faithful to you. I'm going to trust you enough to do what you say. I'm going to be obedient to you. And I remember thinking of this all the way from the very beginning. As Paul's making this this trek back to Jerusalem, he knew what was going to be coming. He knew the sort of suffering that awaited him. But he trusted God enough to go anyway. God, I trust you enough to be obedient to you. And what about a clear conscience towards man? How could he say to those people who were just, I mean, they're apoplectic here, they're gritting their teeth, they're screaming, they're yelling, they want nothing more than for him to be dead. How can he say, my conscience is clear towards you? I mean, if Paul had been a perpetual jerk, if Paul had said things that were just intentionally provocative to them, irritating to them, if Paul was just simply attacking them, opposing them, returning tit for tat with them, then maybe he wouldn't be able to say that. My conscience is clear. No, I deserve some of what I'm getting. I see why you hate me so. No, part of this is my fault, so I apologize. But none of that's in the story, and none of that happened. Why? Because Paul loved them enough to tell them the truth. And that's how he could say, my conscience is clear before you. You may hate what I'm saying. You may hate me for saying it. But if I'm going to die with a clear conscience where you're concerned... I have to tell you the truth regardless. That's it. 
Because if I hold any of that back, if I know something is true, but I'm afraid of how you're going to react to it, I'm afraid of how you're going to respond to it, I'm afraid of how you're going to treat me once I tell you it, I'm afraid of what you're going to think of me, I'm afraid of what a relationship's going to be like, I'm afraid of what it's going to cost me. If I do any of those things, and when I'm standing in judgment, if I see you standing there too, I'm going to have to hang my head in shame because I didn't do what I should have done for your sake. And Paul holds both those in balance. I'm doing what I'm doing as a faithful servant of God because I want to hold my head high before the king and I'm doing what I'm doing for your sake because I, in judgment, want to know I've done all that I could that you would know Jesus too. Now listen, this is, this is a hard thing for us to grasp. And, and I want you to hear what I'm saying this morning with this. You know, for as much as Paul saw evil in this world, I mean, he did. You know, I, I think there's a temptation sometimes to think that the times we're living in are so uniquely evil that we lose sight of just the plain evidence of history. I mean, Paul had observed evil everywhere. I mean, think of the places he went and the responses that he got. I mean, he saw paganism everywhere. He saw the dangers of false belief. He saw injustice everywhere and suffering everywhere. And anger and violence and animosity everywhere. In, 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 as much as Paul saw evil in the world, and as much antagonism as he faced, I mean, if there's ever been a person that was in the crosshairs of his times, it, w- it was Paul. I mean, frequent, egregious, unjust persecution, nearly dead multiple times. In spite of all that, Paul never wanted to crush his opponents, he only wanted to convert them all the way to the end. I imagine Paul in a 21st century context. The Apostle Paul with a Twitter account. I mean, think of the world that we live in. It's easy. Listen, if you and I are not careful, we'll get jaded and we'll get cynical. And the conditions that we face, growing antagonism towards your faith, growing opposition to morals and values that you think are unquestionable. Animosity, freely expressed, opposition everywhere. If we're not careful, there's going to be something in, inside of us that's going to well up that will make us just want to crush all these people. And Paul wanted their salvation. He wanted their conversion. It wasn't loathing that drove Paul's ministry. It was love. That's, that's weighty, man. We're not careful. We won't be able to carry out the mission because those people that we see will become enemies and we will loathe them. We won't love them enough to tell them the truth. Our our ministry in this world, the culture in which we live, which admittedly, undeniably, is getting worse and worse and worse. You'd have to be, you'd have to be totally off the the grid. You'd have to have your head so deep in the sand to not see what's happening all around us. But our ministry is not simply to rage against this culture. That would be easy for me to do. It would be easy for me to incite you to do. Our ministry is to reveal Christ to this culture. Now, I'm not saying that the results won't necessarily be the same. You can choose to just combat everything, wage war against everyone, and they'll hate you for it. You can choose to tell the truth about Christ. You can choose to tell the truth about what His Word says and what God demands from us. And they'll hate you for it. But our job 
is to reveal Him. If we're faithful to Christ, if we honor Him in His Word, if we do what it says and if we live by it, if we're fearless to carry out this sort of mission, if we're fearless to say, no, this is where I stand, this is what I believe, this is how I'm going to live, then you can anticipate the hatred of this world. The Bible says so. Jesus said so. And it'll be for the same cause. Because Jesus told them the truth. And they hated him. But you and I don't have to hate back. We don't have to hate back. And, and let me add just one other thing. as You look at this text and contextualize it. Even in the worst of worlds, in the worst of times, Paul was never pessimistic or fatalistic. He was never pessimistic or fatalistic. Pessimistic in the sense that all is doom and gloom and all is dark and terrible. Or fatalistic, what I do doesn't matter. I can't make a difference. It's going to go the way it's going to go, and I've got no say in the matter. He was none of those things. Paul was confident that God would prevail in all circumstances. He was confident in those cities that God was still bringing people to himself. He was confident in those places that he went that a church would be birthed. He was confident that the good news would continue to expand and go out in the face of persecution. And he also knew the means of God's prevailing everywhere. Not just that God would prevail, but how he would prevail. That God would carry out his providential purposes through obedience. Through saints willing to suffer. Through people who believed. And so they spoke, regardless of cost. They kept going, they kept going. I'm sure that Paul had a deep, unshakable confidence that Satan is not in control of this world nor his minions, nor his followers, nor his sympathizers, nor those who are deluded and deceived by him. And in his book, Providence, John Piper writes, we are called in Scripture to have confidence that Satan will never have the final say. We are called to be confident as God's children that his will is final. His will is decisive. So don't allow the circumstances of this world just to make you one who just rages against it. As a Christian, we've got to do more than that. True Christianity has always stood over and against and opposed to any culture in which it's lived. Always. That's not changed. And just like they saw the Apostle Paul, the world might see us as a curse. But that doesn't mean that we stop providing the cure. That's our purpose. That's our goal. So don't lose hope. Don't lose hope in that. Don't lose hope in the circumstances. Can you imagine some of the people telling Paul, it's not worth it, man. How much more are you going to suffer? How much more will you give? Look, nothing's changing. Look, they're becoming more and more antagonistic against you. They're becoming more and more settled in their opposition to the gospel. How are you going to ever penetrate all this darkness, all this lostness, all this paganism? But he persisted. He persevered and he didn't lose hope. This is the same apostle who would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That wasn't just some sort of theory, by the way, that I, I get it theoretically, I've got a better life then. This was a person who was dying every day for the sake of Christ. He says, I'll die because I know this. In this tent we groan, and when Paul says we groan, he didn't simply mean that achy back. 
He meant the brutal life he had lived for the sake of Christ. We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage, he says. We're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done, whether good or evil. And that's Paul. I'm going to be bold. And whether living or dying, I'm going to please God. That's my aim. So fast forward to this last portion, and then we'll conclude. Paul before Felix. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, and of course the way, he's talking to this early movement we call the church, the way, those who are followers of Christ. He put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that, that he, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So it's sort of house arrest for Paul. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And would you like to hear that conversation? I'd like to know the, the transcript of that. This is what we get, this summary statement, verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, Go away for, for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, we see through this continuous thread of Acts, this theme of Jewish opposition, hard-heartedness, stubborn resistance to the gospel, and Roman-Gentile sympathy. And this was all part of God's sovereign hand. The church would move its primary center of influence from Jerusalem to Rome. We see this growing and happening. Of course, you see the liberties that are afforded to Paul. It's not like a regular prison for him. and He has access to people and access to conversations. And through all of this, the Lord is with him. Through all this, the Lord is with him. And all of this, he's using these opportunities to talk about Jesus. I mean, two years of gospel conversations with Felix. Let's talk about Felix just for a moment in case his story looks anything at all like yours or anything at all like the people you talk to. Scripture says Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He comprehended things. He understood the facts of things, maybe even the storyline. But he didn't have faith. You, you realize it's possible to be able to pass a pop quiz on the gospel and not be born again? You realize that's entirely possible. To look at the story, summarize it in a simple outline, and concur with it, does not make you a convert. Concurrence is not the same thing as conversion. Because those whom Jesus converts, he changes. The heart changes. There's a regeneration, a rebirth. There's a new Savior. There's a new King. There's a new Sovereign in a person's life. It's the Spirit of God present there. 
And so he understood. He had, the, he had the facts down. And I think a lot of people in church life, they have the facts down. And if they're asked, do you believe this? They would say yes. True or false? They would get the truths right and the false is wrong. But it doesn't mean that they're born again. It doesn't mean they've been converted by the Spirit of God and they've yielded to the sovereign lordship of Christ. We see that Felix brought in his wife and sent for Paul and had many conversations with Paul. He was curious. He was interested. We didn't have belief. You, you, can be, you can have spiritual curiosity. You know, one of the things we've been hearing people say for years is, well, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. You can have all the spiritual curiosity in the world. I've gone through periods of being spiritually curious and reading books by, in other religions and, and all these things. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And then the sort of content that Paul had in his conversations with Felix, he says he talked about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. What do you suppose he was doing in those conversations? He was painting a right picture of what the good news is. That the good news of God is the antidote to the bad news that pre-exists it. The starting point of all humanity, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you can imagine him working through the implications of sin, that sin isn't just this theoretical concept, okay, I know I'm not God, I know I'm not perfect. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you, you lack self-control, you willfully intentionally choose things that are wrong and evil and hateful. Have you not done this? Well, there is a judgment for that. And that's bad news. What's the judgment? The wages of sin is death, death, death. And we see the theme of death starting in Genesis and running all the way through Scripture. And you can imagine these conversations. And we see that Felix was convicted. Convicted to the point of discomfort. You know, how about you take a break? You go away for a while. We'll talk about this later. But being convicted, feeling guilty is not the same thing as being repentant. Guilt and conviction left alone is just defeating. There's no joy in that. Guilt and conviction left without remedy is, is destructive stuff. I mean, that kind of weight, that kind of burden, that, that kind of sense of heaviness on you, it's repentance that brings about freedom. Repentance is the turn. Repentance is the turn from despair to hope, from death to life. He never did that. For two years he conversed with Paul. But there's no evidence he was ever saved. And that's a tragedy. Two years of exposure to the gospel. What if there's some among us who've had exposure for more than two years? And we've gone through these stages. Yeah, I, get the, I get the basic facts. I raised my hand and agreed to those when I was six or seven. But my life never changed. I'm curious about this, how it all works, but I'm curious about other things too. And yeah, I feel guilty sometimes. That's not salvation. I hope you'll go all the way to the point of surrender. God, here's my life. Take it. Take it. Be king of it. I yield it all to you. Forgive me of everything I've been apart from you. And make me brand new. Make me your child so I can serve you. I asked you these two questions at the beginning, and I'll close with these now. I ask you to consider as you listen, what's your responsibility? A vertical responsibility and a horizontal responsibility. Versus horizontal responsibility, your responsibility manward to the people around you. As a Christian, do you feel like you've got any responsibility for the people that are in your sphere of influence, your family, your friendship circle, your neighborhood? 
whatever it may be, people that God's putting you in your life, do you feel any responsibility for them? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says we're ambassadors for Christ. That God makes his appeal through us. And the implication of that understanding, that sense of responsibility, that I, I do represent Christ. And Christ does make his appeal to people through, through me. And what do I do? I urge people, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That, that's my responsibility, man, is to represent Christ. To be a good ambassador of Jesus. A good earthly representative of my king. An ambassador for him in a, in a different kingdom, a foreign kingdom. And tell people, repent and believe Jesus. Repent and believe Jesus. That's my responsibility, man. We're to represent Jesus well in this kingdom so they can join his. And what about my responsibility Godward? And I think, I think the Apostle Paul had a clear sense of this as well and writes about it. He, he wrote to Timothy, and you may remember a few weeks ago the introduction of Timothy in the, in the book of Acts. Timothy will pastor a church that Paul starts, a church in Ephesus. He'll be one of the elders there. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then in verse 12 of that same paragraph, he reiterates his own position. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until, until that day what has been entrusted to me. And I think of my responsibility Godward. And I would summarize it this, particularly in the times in which we live, to never be ashamed of Jesus and his salvation. To never be ashamed. To never be in a position where I wouldn't want someone to know who Jesus is and how Jesus has saved me and how Jesus would save them. I think if I'm going to be able to stand before the Father one day and not hang my head in shame, I want to be able to say, Jesus, I was never ashamed of you. When I was being accused or, or maligned or disliked, I was never ashamed of you, Jesus. I, I was, there was never a time where I wouldn't say, no, let me tell you what I'm really about. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. That, that I, I wasn't worried about people's opinions and I didn't live under the curse of the fear of man. But I said, in all things, living or dying, I want to please you. I'm not ashamed about you. If that's suffering, so be it. Because I'm convinced. I'm convinced that I'm in your hands. You'll guard it till the end. I pray that all of us look hard today at our responsibility to the people around us. Can we be like the Apostle Paul who says, when it comes to, to my conscience, you know, I... I want a clear conscience. I always take pains. I take pains to have a clear conscience before you. Maybe that means there's a, a neighbor down your street that you've been thinking you should talk to them about Jesus, but you haven't yet. Take pains to have a clear conscience before that man or that woman. There's somebody you need to say something to. Take pains to have a clear conscience before them. You don't know how many opportunities you have. You don't know how long this window will be open. Take pains. And if you've been covert in your Christianity, afraid of what people might say, think, what it might cost you, and not just that you believe in Jesus, that you live for Jesus, 
that you take him seriously. You do what his word says. You practice it, live it, love it. Don't be ashamed of that. Be able to stand before the Lord Jesus one day, the king, and say, it cost me. You see the scars on my back. But I was never ashamed of you, King Jesus. I was faithful to you to the end. Let's pray. Father, make it so for us, I pray. Lord, I want us to go beyond. I want to go beyond hero worship when it comes to the Apostle Paul. I want to know you that way. I want to be as convinced as Paul. I want to be as courageous as Paul. I want to be as consistent and faithful as Paul. I want these things, Lord Jesus. I want these things for us all. And Father, in a grand sense, the times in which we live are are not particularly unique. But in our span of life, they are. They're different now. And things have changed. And both the challenge and the opportunity both have increased. The cost, but the opportunities have gone way up. Lord, I pray that we be found faithful. And Lord, calls us, I pray, for a good result, for a good end, calls us by your Holy Spirit in us to wrestle with that idea of a clear conscience before God and man this week. Lord, in every situation and circumstance, may we, may we have both. And Lord, in that, may you be glorified. And in that, Lord, I pray that we will be blessed. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.